0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, good morning, good morning. Go ahead and make your way to your seats. How's everybody doing this morning? You guys have a good weekend? Hey, you know what's supposed to be in the 80s this week? Is that amazing or what? Hello spring, all right? We have some folks that are visiting. We always have people visiting from different parts of the country every weekend. I think there's some folks from Chicago here, and I had fun asking, how's the weather back in Chicago, right? Oh, man, I love Southern California. Uh, Hey, uh, my name is Matt, and I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision here, and I'm excited to finish out the You Ask For It series. Um, If you've not been around here for a while, the month of January, we've taken four weeks, and uh, we allowed you to shape the content for a sermon series. You ask the questions and uh, it's been good for us to hear what's on your heart. And uh, we've taken these four weeks, and we want to answer some of those. Now, here's the thing: um, today is the last day, and a lot of you guys ask questions. You're like, "You didn't answer my question." That's okay. Uh, it wasn't that it wasn't a good question. Some were good questions. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but, but we couldn't answer all of them. But what we would like to do is, at some point in the future, we would like to shape future sermon series based on those questions because they were really, really good. And so, if you have a question that we did not answer, and you're just like, "I need to know," would you just grab us? Feel free to. Grab grab us afterwards. We'll be happy to set up coffee or lunch and uh, we'd love to spend some time with you. All right. Today is a tough question. Uh, we save the best for last. I don't know if it's the best. It's the hardest for last. And so um, I finished this sermon on the way to Las Vegas on Friday. I was preaching three times this weekend. I got it back at 1 a.m. this morning. And uh, I just, as I'm writing this sermon, I'm like, this is a really difficult subject. And it, because it talks about the nature of God. And it addresses some difficult things in Scripture, and so today I hope it's going to be instructive to you. Um, I, I'm not as much a teacher as I am a preacher, but today is going to sort of be uh, some teaching, if that if that makes sense to you today. And so let me just pray for us, and we'll just dive right in today. Um, Jesus, thank you for today. <clears throat> God, thank you for the beautiful weather. Thank you for the sun coming up this morning. Um, It reminds us of your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 21, 22, and 23. God, your mercies are new every day, and your faithfulness is great. And so, God, today we trust in your faithfulness and your mercy and your grace. So, God, as we address a difficult subject today, I pray that you would speak delicately to our hearts and our minds, instruct us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And Amen. The atheist Richard Dawkins uh, wrote a book called The God Delusion and he makes a statement in this book that's that's pretty famous. In fact, you've heard it before more than likely. In fact, you may if you've been around here for a year and a half or so, you've probably heard me quote this statement before. And, And in his book, The God Delusion, Um, Richard Dawkins says this about God. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, p- pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously male- 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 male. You get it. You see it on the screen. Bully. <laughs> and that's what Richard Dawkins says and how he describes how he reads the God of the Old Testament. Can we just have a moment of honesty this morning and first of all say we're not afraid of difficult questions and secondly, can we just lay on the table this morning and admit that there's a lot of death? There's a lot of killing on the earth, uh, the earth being consumed with water, just a few people remaining, families of the earth passing from the earth at God's hand in the Old Testament. And the reality is when we flip to the New Testament, we just don't read much of that. We read Jesus hanging out with what scripture says were the worst of the worst. They were The tax collectors and the sinners. And we read about a more graceful God in the New Testament. And so some people would say, God seems to be this cranky and harsh God in the Old Testament. But then when you get to the New Testament, it's like like the the harsh edges have rubbed off, right? Like like an old grandfather who was rough in his younger years, and now he's more a grace-filled man in his older years. So how could the God of justice in the Old Testament order the slaughtering of people? And in the New Testament, Jesus says, turn the cheek. So the, sort of this idea this morning centers on the nature of God. Can Christianity be true? Because the nature of God seems to be in conflict, in contradiction. And so, yes, these things are there. These things are in the Bible this morning. Look, I didn't need a creative illustration to get your attention this morning. You're dialed in already, right? I just wanna make a promise to you this morning. I wanna read some scripture, okay? It is equal opportunity today, I promise you. I will equally offend everybody in this room today, okay? But I hope it's not me offending you. I hope when I read scripture, I'm just gonna let scripture speak for itself. But we need to acknowledge that, yes, these things are there, and there's something to this question that needs to be understood, Okay? So, so let me do this. I, I just wanna read some scripture together. You're like, like, like where does this say this? Like, like, Matt, I don't come to church. This may be the first time you've been here or I've not been in a long time. I've heard people talk about this in the Old Testament. Where do you actually read this about God being harsh in the Old Testament? Well, Genesis chapter six, verse 13 is one of the first glimpses of this idea that we, that we get. And then God said to Noah, you, you probably have heard this story. It's, it's, it's the story of the flood. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy the earth and, all of it and everything in it. And so just a few verses before Genesis chapter 6, we see God make this statement that that every intent and every thought of humanity is evil, he says, just a few verses before this. And then we go on to read God saying that he was sad that he even created humanity. And so then we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, we see that, that, that God has made this proclamation that, that he, almost like he's gonna wipe it out and start all over. And so what we see is we see a man named Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So you have eight people who are left on planet Earth along with two of every animal. Then we get to Exodus chapter 7. And the context here is that God's people are enslaved in Egypt. And the Pharaoh is unduly harsh to them. And God says, I've got a plan here. I made a promise way back in Genesis 15 to a man named Abraham, and my promise is I'm gonna have a people, and through this people and through this man, I'm going to bless the entire world. Now, when they're in captivity in Egypt, it's like, okay, how is God gonna bless the world while we're in captivity? And so God says, I hear your cry. It's come up to me, and I'm gonna do something about it. Exodus chapter seven says, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And I will bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And so what we understand that happens here, God brings these plagues to the nation of Egypt. And the very last plague we see is a plague where every firstborn in the country is killed, including Pharaoh's son, including the firstborn of every cattle in the country. Exodus chapter um, 11 verse four and five says, Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all of the firstborn of the cattle as well. And so we read that and we're like, God, that's difficult to digest. God is literally ordering the slaughter of people. But then we we, we get into a similar scenario, though a little bit different, and it offers uh, 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 probably an equally, if not more, difficult scenario for us to digest. We find ourselves in Joshua chapter 6, and now God is not acting alone. God's not acting alone in, in the slaughter of people. God is using humanity to exact his justice, and judgment. Joshua chapter 6, verse 17. This is the story, if you remember, if you've been around church at all, of, of the people of God. Remember what they did? They marched around the walls of where? Where were they marching? Jericho. They marched around six times. And then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times and the walls fell down. And then in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, we find out what God has asked to happen. The city shall be under the man. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then you get to verse 21, and here we find the aftermath of what happens in this city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. You're dialed in this morning. I can see. You've never been like this before, okay? No doubt. No doubt. This is a, a complicated moral question because now God's not just acting alone, he's using humanity to exact his justice. Now we get to the New Testament and we see something that, that seems to be different than what we've read about in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter four, 5, verse 44 says this, "'But I say to you, love your enemies "'and pray for those who persecute you.'" Matthew five thirty eight and 39 says, "'You've heard it was said.'" an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But now I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And, but when whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. So in the New Testament, we see Jesus saying, lay your life down for the world. Don't kill in order to spread the gospel. In fact, you may have to die in order for the gospel to spread. And that was the story of all but 11 disciples. And we see what seems to be this altogether different type of God between one part of the Bible and another part of the Bible. And so we conclude with the question before us today. Why does God seem so harsh to people in the Old Testament and so forgiving of people in the New Testament? And what does it say about the nature of God? Now listen to me. Don't put this up yet, Bob. The answer to this is pretty simple. But if I just say this this morning, you're gonna be like, I'm not satisfied with that answer. <laughs> and so I'm not gonna leave you there, but I wanna start there, okay? The answer to this is, is simply this God is more harsh than you think, yet not nearly as harsh as you imagine. You're like, that seems contradictory. I understand. Now let me try to unpack that for you. To understand what's happening here, we've got to understand um, what we're looking at is, is two different windows, two different perspectives from the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the Bible begins here, not with a God of wrath. If you open up your Bible, if you have a copy, if you don't, we would like to give you one every single Sunday morning. We have free copies of the Bible. If you open it up to Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse one, we don't open up and begin reading about a God of wrath. We read about a God of grace, a creative God of grace. How do you mean that, Pastor Matt? What I mean by that is that God creates. He brings the world into existence and the very act of creation is the most graceful thing God could do. Now listen, if if we view the world that we are in through the lens of scripture, then what we understand is that God is responsible for everything. You're not a happenstance. You're not a circumstance. You're not an accident. God is responsible for you. And when you understand properly through scripture, what you understand is that you didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it. We didn't have this situation where God was lonely, and so he created. He didn't need us, yet God created humanity. And so in the very opening pages of Scripture, we see not a God of wrath. We see a God of grace. Now, if you get to Genesis chapter 2 and then turn over to Genesis chapter 3, what you find is there are 929 chapters in all of Scripture. It only takes two chapters for creation, the ones whom God is responsible for, who didn't ask for it, who didn't deserve it, yet God in his grace said, I'm going to make this happen. It only takes two chapters for humanity to be ungrateful. (laughs) It only takes two chapters for humanity to be ungrateful, and humanity introduces this activity in the world that did not exist prior to this. And that activity is what we understand as sin. And so the reason why that activity did not exist before is because that's not in God's nature. Part of the essence of God's nature is what we call his holiness. Big word, big church word. What does holiness mean? Holiness, in essence, means being separate from something else. God is wholly different. He is wholly separate from humanity, which means sin cannot exist in the presence of God, even though the world that he created now partakes in that sin. So when we look through this Old Testament window, We see a God who's establishing a created order that rebelled against that created order. And so in the aftermath of that rebellion, now what we see is a loving God who promises to make it good once again. If you've been around here for a while, you hear us say this often. This is not how God originally created it to be. And when we messed it up, God said, my promise is I'm going to get us back to the garden. I'm going to get us back to that place. And those promises are not dependent on me. Those promises are not dependent on you. Those promises are dependent on the God who made them. Now, listen, just like He did in the garden with Adam and Eve, God now says, as He's unfolding this plan to get us back to the garden, God now says, I'm asking for your obedience. I'm asking you to respond to the glory of who I am. And that's difficult for a lot of us, especially in Western culture, in individualistic culture, where we want no one pressing down on us, not even our bosses, not even our spouses, not even our kids, we want nothing holding us down. And so it's difficult to hear that God now says, I want your obedience. I want you to respect my glory. Now here's the thing. Only God has the privilege and the capacity to make that claim. Why? Because that claim is related to the nature of God, which is his holiness. God is the only one who is completely separate from sin. And when sinful man disobeys God, God has obligated himself to destroy and eradicate sin from the earth. Now listen to me. God's intent there to destroy evil is for your good and for my good. You're like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing that right now, Pastor Matt. The reason why it is good is because when the barrier of sin is removed between us and God, then fellowship, the possibility of fellowship with God is now possible. Until that barrier is removed, fellowship with God is not possible. We understand that God knows every hair on every head on planet earth from the beginning of time until now. He's not absent of your story. He's not unaware of your story. He knows your story. But listen, if your problem of sin has not been dealt with, that there's still a barrier between you and God because of your sin, fellowship with God is just not possible. That's the record of, uh, of scripture. And so when God has this intent to destroy sin, he's doing so for your good and my good in order to make fellowship with him possible. And so God says, when you obey me, the mission moves forward. But when you disobey me, when you obey me, the mission moves forward. The mission, it expands to the world. But when you disobey me, the mission is stifled. And there are consequences. In other words, we find in the Old Testament, people doing things they don't want to do, serving people they don't want to serve, going places they don't want to go. And so the God of grace who created humanity, who rebelled, that God is on mission now to restore it. And listen to me, listen to me. This is going to be hard, but I I, I need to say this to you. And that God is now justified in acting in ways that fulfill his mission. If God did not punish evil, if God did not punish evil, we would not only consider him unrighteous, but we would consider him uncaring. Now, just just imagine for a moment, in an imperfect illustration, you have a family member, a daughter, a wife, a sister, a mom, who has experienced brutal evil in this world. And that evil was captured on film. Everybody saw it. Everybody knows it. We have the record of it. Nobody denies it. CNN has published it. Fox has published it. MSNBC has published it. Everybody around the world has seen the tape and the film. And we know who exacted that evil on your loved one. And that guilty party is now standing in the courtroom. And the judge says, I recognize that you are guilty. And the whole world knows it. And there's not a shadow of a doubt who did this to her. But I need to tell you something. I know you're guilty. But from my perspective, I'm going to decide to ignore the law and allow you to walk free out of this courtroom today. Now, if we saw that picture, we would say, that judge is unrighteous. That judge is not just. On the other side, if we had a person who had been um, evil had been done against, but we're not sure who the person was that did it. We're not overly, in fact, there's a bit of evidence that suggests that this person did not do it. And then in that scenario, the judge says, I know we're not certain about who did this, but today somebody's got to pay for it. So you, you're going to experience the maximum effect of the law, life in prison or death in the electric chair. And that's a God Who's unca- I mean, th- that's a judge who's uncaring. And so in both scenarios, we see this idea that if God doesn't punish evil, then not only do we consider him unrighteous, but we also consider him uncaring. Now listen to me. Listen to me. This is a difficult statement, and I want you to see my face when I say it to you this morning. I want you to hear the words, but I want you to see my face. God is just in killing whoever he pleases. There's not a believer on the face of the earth that should make a statement like that with a smile on their face, with joy in their heart. In fact, people who focus on wrath with no grace, I question the sincerity of their faith because it's just not the record of scripture. However, when we understand scripture rightly, we understand the created God who was offended by rebellion And has enacted this mission to bring us back to the place where we originally intended to be. That God, that God is just and acting in ways to fulfill that mission. And so the window that we see in the Old Testament is one that shows how wrathful, how just, how true, how glorious God is. Now listen to me. And how terrible sin is. How terrible sin is. So so I think there's this intention in the Old Testament when you read it. There's this intention to to, to make um, the the Old Testament look bleak, to make sin look horrible, to make God look just, for for there to be much less mercy proportionate to what you see in the three years when Jesus walked on the earth. And that's intentional. And furthermore, we're not privy to all the content and the actions and the attitudes and the perceptions of the nations of the world towards God. And so we question why God would choose to punish those whom we think that would be unfair and we're just not privy to all of that content. So the Bible portrays God not only as a loving and long-suffering but also a just judge who punishes an unrepentant and the wicked. Listen to me. For him to be one without the other would not be good news for us, y'all. For him to be overly just, for him to be overly harsh would not be good news for us. To him, for for him to be to be be all loving and long-suffering and all grace, it would not be good news for us, y'all. It would not be good news for for your relative who experiences evil to not experience justice, even though that doesn't always happen. And so, but there's a difficulty. There's a difficulty in understanding this process. We see this justice in Jericho. You march around the wall, the walls fall, and then the people of God go in, and, and God says there's nothing to be breathing when you finish. No man, no woman, no child, not even a donkey has breath in their lungs when you're done. And there's difficulty there because it's not now God acting on his own. It's now God acting through humanity to exact his justice. There are humans killing humans, and now there's a moral question of what is right to do. We have to understand something. The Sixth Commandment says what? Do you know what it says? Do not what? Murder. Now we've got Joshua and the Israelites murdering people. How do we explain it? God's commanded Joshua to wipe out Jericho, not leave anyone or anything with breath in their lungs. Joshua 6, 1 through 5, verse 21. Now listen, we need to understand what's happening here. In Joshua chapter 6, there's a people. There's a nation that God has assembled for himself. Listen to me. He is the immediate king of this nation. We live in a democracy. We have a government. This immediate king was was over these people, this ethnic group. There was a political alliance with God, and now these people lived in a theocracy, different than how God is king over the church today, vastly different how God is king over the church today. There is not a political, there is not an ethnic dimension to how God is over the church today. When we read the Old Testament, God is the immediate king. There is a theocracy. He is, he is, he is commanded, and He has is, he is covenanted himself with this people, and those people serve as the instrument to accomplish His judgment in the world at that time. So during Joshua's days, God's the king. We live in a democracy. Joshua and the people of Israel lived under a theocracy. God was the king. And what's happening in Joshua 6 is the fulfillment of what God said way back in Genesis 15, 14, 15, and 16. Is that the sin of the Amorites would become full for 400 years until their capacity to offend God could not be any greater. And then at that point, God would use his people and send them in as instruments of judgment. So under the rule of God as king, Joshua is vindicated to annihilate those people. That's complicated. That's complicated. It's a complicated moral issue and question to understand in this situation that God asked humans to kill. It's a different situation than when God sent this flood to the earth and everybody on planet earth save eight were remaining. It gets difficult when he uses other people. So what about today? Do we have a right to kill people today? Do we have a right to kill in the name of God today? a great question. That was included in a paragraph that was asking this question today. And the answer is no. The answer is no. Then, then, then why? How do you reconcile that, Pastor Matt? Because God has given the sword of judgment to the government. Last week, if you were here, you remembered we mentioned this in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Let me, we don't have that scripture, but let me just read it for you real quick. And God has given the authority of, of the sword to the government. Romans chapter 13 says, for rulers." Um, Every person is to be in subject in verse one to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Verse two, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they have opposed, um, uh, they have received condemnation upon themselves. Verse three, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. But for evil, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Verse four, for it is a minister of God to you for good. God is saying the government is a minister of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, scripture says, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing. The government is a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to the very thing. Rendered, we said this last week. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. The government now has the authority to take a rapist, to take a murderer, and subject them, punish them for life in prison and even possibly kill them. It's not illogical to believe that Genesis 9 can be reconciled here and consistent with God's nature for capital punishment because of the value of man. But that's very different than saying anyone can go around killing today in the name of God. And, and we don't suggest that and we do not believe that. So there have been times when God shares his authority to take life. And the church today is not Israel. Listen to me. We are not a political entity. We are not an ethnic entity. And God says today, love your enemy. He says to us today, pray for those who abuse you. Lay your life down for the world. Don't kill in order to spread the gospel. But you may have to die in order to spread it. And so we see this God in the Old Testament protecting this infant nation in order to bring salvation to the entire world. And so we conclude that God acts lovingly when he judges a wicked nation. And so when he says to Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation of people, God specifically says he's doing that so that the entire world can benefit from it. And if Israel loses its identity, then all of humanity would lose its pathway to God's blessing. Now, before we leave the Old Testament, and we're going to conclude here, before we leave the Old Testament, let's be reminded, because it's... It's, it's very easy to get caught up in Joshua 6, in Genesis 6, in Exodus 7. It's very easy to get caught up in those stories, but, be, but forget the fact that those aren't the only stories in the Old Testament. We see not only a, a God who is just, but we see a God who is long-suffering, a God who is compassionate, a God who is forgiving. If you've been around here for a few months, we just walked through the book of Jonah together. And you remember what happened. God sent a man to go to a very evil and vindictive people who were some of the most cruel people on the planet. And they were actually enemies of God's people. And that's why Jonah said, I don't want to go there, God. Because they may kill me, God. But also, God, what happens if you forgive them? I don't want you to forgive them, God. They don't deserve forgiveness. And God says, no, no, no. Those are the people I want you to go to. Because I'm long-suffering. And I'm compassionate. And so God extended... This chance to repent in the book of Nineveh, even, I mean, in the book of Jonah, even though their deeds were wicked. And then we get to this book of Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 17 and verse 28. And we read this, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. And they became stiff necked. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. This is, this is God's people talking about themselves. But this is what they said. But you are a forgiving God, a gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. And then he go on verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Let's not forget that we just don't have a God who's just in the Old Testament. We have a God whose record is a God who is long-suffering and compassionate and graceful. And we cannot overlook who's speaking these verses in Nehemiah 9. It's God's people who had experienced, by the way, suffering firsthand some of the worst of God's judgments. And yet the dominant note of Nehemiah 9, in really the Old Testament is how merciful and gracious and forgiving God is. Now, that's the Old Testament window that we're looking through. The New Testament window that we're looking through is that we read about Jesus having this incredible (laughs) open-heartedness towards people who were considered evil. And so why do we have this seeming difference here in the New Testament? This is good. This is where hopefully your heart is warm and your affections are stirred this morning. I believe the answer is in Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four, Jesus is beginning his ministry. I just preached this, this, the, the, the 13 verses before yesterday in Las Vegas. Verse 16, Luke chapter four, Jesus is beginning his ministry. And this is what it says. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. I don't know why. I just, its a very visual scene. Jesus is in the synagogue and the attendant hands him the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament. And Jesus begins to read, it says. And he opened up the book and he found the place where it is written. He goes to Isaiah chapter 61. He reads verse one and the first half of verse two. And this is what Isaiah 61 verse one and two says. And the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And then Jesus reads the first half of Isaiah 61:2 And he says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops. Why does he stop? Because the second half of verse two talks about the day of vengeance that was upon the people in the Old Testament where we see the seriousness of sin, the justness of God. And he stops there. And then it says, and he closed the book. And then it says, he sat down. And the eyes of everybody in the synagogue are on Jesus. Like this is so visual, I can just see it play out. It's as if Jesus was saying to those people who were the ethnic political people of God in the Old Testament, it's as if Jesus is saying, now I know you've got questions. And Jesus says this in verse 21. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he said, I know you read about my justice in the Old Testament and how it needed to be understood what's happening here. But now there's a new window. And the window that you're about to see through is encapsulated in John 3:17. I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. So now Jesus has come into the world, not with wrath, but the most extraordinary measure of grace. Now listen, if you don't understand this, you'll never understand the depth of the grace of God that he offers to you. All of the Old Testament people who suffered the wrath of God for their sin, the nation of Egypt, the people who got wiped out in Genesis chapter six, Jericho, all of the people who experienced the wrath and the justice of God in the Old Testament. Listen to me. God is now saying, I've come to fulfill the mission. I'm not gonna wipe people out anymore. You know why? I'm gonna take it on myself. The full measure of God's wrath and justice God sent himself to earth and he said, now, those people you read about in the Old Testament, I'm gonna do it to myself. I'm gonna show you how serious I am to remove this barrier of sin between you and me. So the fellowship is now possible. And now we see this new window in the New Testament And what's left is this window that we're seeing through. And it's a day of offering forgiveness. It's a day of dying for sinners. It's a day for holding out his hands. And Jesus saying, come to me. The window we see through in the Old Testament is how wrathful, how just, how true, how glorious God is, how terrible sin is. But now we're getting mercy incarnate forgiveness incarnate, grace incarnate, open-heartedness incarnate, and Jesus is saying, this is what's available to you. The New Testament closes in Revelation with this horrific picture. It closes with this horrific picture with the wrath of God finally being poured out on broken creation so that he can wrap up his plan and reestablish the garden, the creation that he intended to be. But today, today, you're, you're alive today in a window of mercy. You're alive today in a window of grace and forgiveness. And listen to me, I wanna say to you this morning, you should embrace it. Now let me wrap up by saying this. Different aspects of God's nature Don't imply a contradiction. It's not good news for us to have one or the other. Listen to me. God is fully just. Why? He allowed the full wrath of God to be taken on his own body. So we also know he's also fully grace. For him to be one without the other is not good news. Hebrews 13.8 says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Have you trusted your life to Jesus? That's the grace of God on display for you this morning. Your sin is terrible. And yet God is saying, I no longer need to be harsh so that you can understand how terrible this is, I'm going to experience the harshness for myself and remove the barrier between you and me. And today if that barrier has never been removed, you've never come before God and you say, God, thank you for that. God, I trust my life to that and I know today can be different from now to the end because you've saved me, You've, you've removed that barrier, I recognize it and I trust my life to you. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Maybe you've been around church for a long time, and you're like, I just thought it was about being moral and good. And that's not it. That's a terrible life to be lived, a life that's just moral, because you'll never add up, and you'll always experience guilt and shame, until you realize that when you allow Jesus to experience the guilt and shame, then you find true freedom. You trusted your life to Jesus today? I'm going to pray for us. You just pray with me right now in a reverent moment. Just bow your head close your eyes and I'm going to pray for us but let me just say this if you've never trusted your life to Jesus can I ask you to do that? In fact can I just beg you to do that? We're in a window of mercy and grace and God is saying come to me Nothing magical and mystical about that. We don't make you say anything you don't want to say, make you stand on the stage, embarrass you, make you do anything you don't want to do. It's simply a moment that you have with God and you say, God, I know who I am before you and I know what you've done for me and you've removed the barrier of sin so I trust my life to you. Jesus, save me today. I turn from my sin and i walk with you the rest of the days of my life. If you've never done that, I, I want to beg you to do that today. And if you do, I want to know it. Why? Because this is not a solo flight. This is a community journey. We walk together, and we want to walk with you. And So if you want to trust your life to Jesus today, can I ask you to do something simple? I told you I'm not going to embarrass you. When you leave the auditorium this morning, there's a connect table, and there are leaders out there. And there's a card that just says, I've trusted my life to Jesus today. And if you just go, you may even want to say, I've trusted my life to Jesus to one of those leaders. Or you may just want to take a card and fill that out. Our promise to you is we're going to follow up with you this week. Give you a Bible. Give you some material to walk with God. And that's all we want to do. Jesus, we love you. I pray over this room this morning. God, I know there is a a heavy tone in this room. God, this is a difficult subject. It's not easy to approach. God, I pray that you would take the last few minutes together in the scripture that we've read. And God, I pray that you impress upon people's affections the truth that you are fully just and you are full of grace. And Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.